Welcome, my name is Pastor Scotty Bockhaus, and we thank you for taking some time to listen to some audio recordings from the pulpit of the Riverview Baptist Church. Our desire is to show the Lord high, holy, and lifted up, as well as try to be a blessing to those through the Word of God. Please enjoy this message, and we pray that it will be a blessing to your life. And if you wouldn't mind to take your copy of the Word of God and turn with me to the New Testament book of Acts. The New Testament book of Acts in chapter number 24. The New Testament book of Acts in chapter number 24. We're following the Apostle Paul uh, through his life and his ministry. And we watched him as he came to know Jesus Christ as his personal Savior on the road to Damascus. We watched him as he became the pastor of the church of Antioch for a small time. And then he went off to be uh, on his first missionary journey. His second missionary journey where he opened the doors to Europe. His third missionary journeys where... One of the churches that he was privileged to start was the church of Ephesus. And then he made his return trip home. He made his way back to Jerusalem where he met with the pastor of the church of Jerusalem with some of the other key leaders. And they asked him to perform a ceremony of four men who had completed the... the um, the vow of the Nazarite, and they had a special head shaving ceremony where they were going to cut the man, the boy's hair. Remember, the Bible said uh, that it'd be a shame for a man to have long hair, and that for the people who had, took a vow of a Nazarite, they would let their hair grow out as a sign of public shame that says, I haven't completed my promise to God, I'm publicly ashamed, and they continue to let their hair grow out until they've completed that vow. Well, with that came a big ceremony of seven days until finally they finally cut the hair and there was a cost to it. And the Apostle Paul was asked to foot the bill himself. And again, it was something he didn't really want to do, but it was something he did as he submitted to the authority. And on the last day, someone said, hey, look, that's Paul. He's bringing Gentiles into the temple area. And it caused a big riot in Jerusalem. So much that the riots broke out and the people started beating the Apostle Paul. And they would have killed him if it wasn't for the Roman soldiers who came in and t- uh, saved the Apostle Paul. And of course, they didn't know why they were beating on him. So they arrested him, assuming he was a troublemaker. He took some time to step on the step uh to be on the steps in chains with Roman soldiers flanking him as he addressed the crowd and just gave his testimony of how he came to know Jesus Christ as his personal savior. Then they dragged him back. The next day they brought him before the synagogue, the uh, Jewish ruling council dealing with the things of law and matters of, of of their faith. And the apostle Paul, when he surveyed the crowd, he realized that the, it was made up of two groups. The Pharisees who upkept the law, they considered themselves righteous and obeyed the, the law, the commentaries and the commentaries on the commentaries. And then the Sadducees, which denied the miracles. They denied the miracle of resurrection. They denied angels and spirits. In fact, someone said because they denied the supernatural and they denied the resurrection, that was why they were so sad, you see. It's a way to remember it. They just denied all the miracles. So when the Apostle Paul surveyed this in his own flesh, 
He said, I know I'm going to stir them up. And he said, resurrection of the dead. And all of a sudden they started to fight each other. The Pharisees fought against the Sadducees. And so much that it looked like Paul was getting tore, going to be torn apart like a tug of war as they're fighting. No, mine, no, mine. And the Roman soldiers once again had to go and free the Apostle Paul from the mob. Well, afterwards, there were 40 plus Jews who entered in agreement to each other that said, guess what? We hate the Apostle Paul. We want him dead. And so we're making a vow. We're making a curse that we will not eat or drink until Paul is dead. And if we break this vow, we're going to be cursed. You can kill us. We're going to keep this vow. And so it had just so happened that God worked in the circumstance and had Paul's nephew Happened to hear all of this. And so he went to report it to Paul. Paul said, go tell that soldier. That soldier brought him to, um, to the chief captain. The chief captain, when he found out that there was a conspiracy, that they were going to have the apostle Paul go to another trial. And in the midst of the trial, they were going to ambush him. He said, no way, not my prisoner. And so he sent the apostle Paul hundreds of miles north to Caesarea to the seat of the Roman government. And he said, let's allow Felix to deal with this. And he wrote a letter saying, we didn't find anything wrong. As far as I understand, it's something the Jewish people had according to their customs and laws. But I found out they were going to kill my prisoner. So you deal with them. And he said, I told them to go see you. And so this is where we're at, that the Apostle Paul is in prison and now in Caesarea. He still hasn't done anything wrong. And now the new trial begins, this time not before the Sanhedrin court of the Jewish people, but before Felix, the Roman government, the uh, Roman procurer of this area. And he is now going to listen to the Jewish charges. And so let's pick it up in the book of our book of Acts, chapter 24, the book of Acts, chapter 24. And notice what it says in verse number one, Acts 24 and verse number one. And after five days, Ananias, the high priest, descended with the elders and with a certain orator named Tertullius, who informed the governor against Paul. And when he began to come forth. Uh, Tertullius began to accuse him, saying, seeing that by thee we enjoy great quietness and have very worthy deeds are done unto this nation by thy providence. We accept it always and in all places, most noble Felix, with all thankfulness, notwithstanding that I be not further tedious unto thee. I pray thee that thou wouldest hear us of thy clemency a few words. For when we have found this man a pestilent fellow and a mover of sedition among the Jews throughout the world and a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes, whom also have gone about to profane the temple, whom we took and would have judged according to the law. But the chief captain Lysias came upon us and with great violence took him away out of our hands, commanding his accusers to come unto thee by examination of whom thou mayest take knowledge of all these things whereof we accuse him. And the Jews also accented, saying that these things were so. Then Paul, after the governor had beckoned unto him to speak, answered, Forasmuch as I know that thou hast been of many years a judge unto this nation, I do more cheerfully answer for myself. Because I know that thou mayest understand that there are yet but twelve days since I went up to Jerusalem for to worship. And they neither found me in any temple... 
or found me in the temple disputing with any man, neither raising up the people, neither in the synagogues nor in the city. Neither can they prove the things whereof they now accuse me. But this I confess to thee, that after the way which they call heresy, so worship I the God of my fathers, believing all things which are written in the law and in the prophets, and have hope toward God, which they themselves also allow that there be a resurrection of the dead, both of the just and unjust. And herein I do exercise myself to always have a conscience void of offense toward God and toward men. Now, after many years, I have come to bring alms to my nation and offerings, whereupon certain Jews from Asia found me purified in the temple, neither with multitude nor with tumult. Who ought to have been here before thee and object if they have aught against me. Or else let the same here say, for if they found any evil doing in me, whereof I stood before the council. Except it be for this one voice that I cried standing among them, touching the resurrection of the dead, I am called into question by you this day. And when Felix heard these things, having a more perfect knowledge of that way, he deferred them and said, when Lysias chief captain shall come down, I will know of the uttermost of your matter. And he commanded a centurion to keep Paul and to let him have liberty that he should forbid none of his acquaintance to minister or come unto him. And if you're in the habit of marking things in your Bible, would you mark a phrase that we find in the book of Acts in chapter number 24? The book of Acts in chapter 24, and notice with me in verse number 16. Acts 24 and verse 16, notice the phrase, a conscience void of offense. A conscience void of offense. And with the Lord's help, I'd like to preach about this conscience. Having a conscience void of offense. A conscience void of offense. If you don't mind, let's go to the Lord together and let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much again for you opening up your Bible and allowing us to enjoy it. Thank you so much for allowing us to be here in church. Thank you so much for the graciousness that you show us. As we come up to you today in a most serious subject, help us to examine our own consciences before you. That we could say with Paul, truly, that our conscience is void of offense. And if there is any offense within our conscience, that you would help us to deal with it. That you would help us to, to be able to handle it properly, to get it cleansed, to get it renewed so that we, we can serve you in all clarity, all purity. Again, with a subject such as this, I dare not get in my way. I dare not preach in my flesh. I dare not give my own thoughts and opinions of the matter. I pray that you fill me with your Holy Spirit, that I reckon myself dead, and that you once again get your own work accomplished through your precious word. We love you so much, and in Jesus' name, amen. Well, once again, as the Apostle Paul is standing before Felix now, the Jewish people have come up with a new conspiracy. That what they've done is they've hired one of the greatest orators found in the land. So the, ba the greatest public speaker, the greatest lawyer, if you would say. And they've come with a new strategy. Notice with me, chapter 24 and verse 1. And after five days, now let's pause there. Remember, there's some guys that said, we're not going to eat or drink until Paul's dead. Well, five days are passed. How hungry do you think those boys are right now? Just food for thought, you know. 
All right, anyways, after five days, Ananias, the high priest, descended with the elders and with a certain orator named Tertullius, who informed the governor against Paul. So basically, they hired a great lawyer, and he does a big sideshow. He praises Felix. Man, you are the greatest governor ever, and we've had such peace. Oh, and we were so sorry that this came into you. We were going to handle the matter by ourselves. But it wasn't. It was those Roman soldiers who, with great violence, they went and just stole Paul from us. We were going to handle it quietly, but it was your Roman soldiers that bothered us. And if it wasn't for them, you know, you wouldn't even have heard of this. You know, again, that's lies. And they start uh, saying, Paul, he's this guy. He keeps stirring up the Jewish people for sedition. Sedition is an idea of a treason tr- that, uh, that you're raising up people to rebel against the government to overthrow them. And so he's saying, you know, this Paul, he's gone throughout the world to try to get the, the Jews to rebel against the Roman government. And he's trying to overthrow that. By the way, that's not true. And so this orator, this lawyer, begins to speak lies. And when he goes, look, everyone will agree with me. And you watch all the Jewish people nodding their head. Yep, that's it. That's true. That's true. Well, that doesn't look good. So finally, Felix has enough of the lawyer and has him sit down and looks at Paul. And Paul says, man, I am glad I get to tell you my story. I am cheerfully glad to tell you my story. Let me tell you what happened. And he goes on and gives the details of how he was in the temple and no one was with him. And he wasn't when he was in the temple, he wasn't arguing with someone. He wasn't even in a debate. He was in there trying to cut someone's hair. But no, they arrested him and he said, you know, isn't it odd that the people who started this riot, the people who said they saw me do something, where are they at? You have these people who have heard it second or third hand. Where are those people at who accuse me? Let them stand here. You know, isn't it kind of odd that they're not here at all? And finally, uh, Felix says, all right, we'll investigate this. We'll we'll get the chief captain of uh, of the guards come and we'll... He'll have him, we'll talk with him, and we'll see what happened. And so the Apostle Paul takes this time, and the Jews don't make very much headway with Felix at this time. And it says something interesting, that Felix had a perfect knowledge of that way. Remember, when you see that idea of the phrase, that way, it deals with Christianity. It was the name for Christianity. So Felix already had a working knowledge of Christianity. He knew some of the tendons of it. And so he understood that the Jewish people hated the Christianity and knew that there was a, a, a parting to it. But in here, in the midst of this story, I want to show you once again what Paul says in Acts 24 and verse number 16. Acts 24 and verse 16. It says this, Paul is speaking, and herein do I exercise myself to have always a conscience void of offense toward God and toward men. Isn't that a powerful statement? That Paul is saying, I exercise myself. That means I work at it. I strive. I seek after this to have a conscience void of offense, both towards God and towards men. Now, again, that's a powerful testimony that says, man, I work hard to have a clear conscience. To have a clear conscience. The word conscience is a very important word in the New Testament. It's used 31 times in the Word of God, all of them in the New Testament. And the one thing that we learned about conscience is that conscience tells us that there is a God. Now, conscience is something that God has made into every man with an innate sense of right and wrong. 
So everyone has a conscience. Everyone has an innate sense of right and wrong. If you don't mind, I'd like to do kind of a word study on the word conscience and see what we can learn about having a good conscience, about what a conscience is. And I'm going to use verse 16 as an outline that it says, and hereby I do exercise myself to have a conscience void of God, or sorry, a conscience void of offense. And then he says, towards God and towards men. So first of all, let's cover the idea of a conscience void of offense. A conscience void of offense. <clears throat> now Paul, again, says he exercised himself. He worked at it. He strived to have a conscience void of offense. He worked at it. One thing I want to tell you about a conscience is that a conscience can be trained. A conscience can be trained. Now, a conscience is not the Holy Spirit, meaning that there's a difference between your conscience bothering you and conviction. Conviction comes from the Holy Spirit for the purpose of correcting our behavior. And so that's something the Holy Spirit does. And it's mainly given to those who have accepted Jesus as their Savior. If you've accepted Jesus as your Savior, then you should be convicted when you do something wrong. We have that added feature. But anyone who lives has a conscience. And a conscience is an innate sense of right and wrong. And it can be trained. Meaning that there are times that our conscience can bother us where the Holy Spirit may not. For example, for a Roman Catholic uh, who is an Orthodox Roman Catholic, their conscience bothers them if they don't make it to Mass. Me? I have no problems if I don't miss Mass. I don't think I said that right, but you understand what I get, right? My conscience doesn't bother me at all that I've missed Mass. I don't think I've ever been to a Mass. Now, it's different from a church service, but, you know, you understand that your conscience can be trained. And so some people can train their conscience to be sensitive about things that they do wrong. Why other people can train their conscience where it doesn't bother them as much. But a conscience can be trained. In addition, a conscience can be seared. A conscience can be seared. With this, let's go ahead and we're going to look at several passages tonight. Look with me, first of all, the book of First Timothy, chapter number 4. The book of First Timothy and chapter number 4. First Timothy and chapter number 4. Let's see what it says about a conscience in this case. First, uh, first Timothy, chapter 4. Notice with me in verse number 2. It's speaking about people who are... are giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils, that they're trying to relate some bad information. Verse number 2, uh, 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 2. Speaking lies and hypocrisy, notice this, having their conscience seared with a hot iron. The word seared is a medical term that carries the idea of applying heat to an artery or something to close up a blood vessel. In this case, a conscience can be seared, meaning that someone can commit so many sins and get to the place where it doesn't bother them. They've hardened so much that it's like taking a hot iron and searing that conscience. So that way the conscience no longer bothers people. Now, everyone's born with a conscience, but because of sin, they can harden themselves up so much that their conscience is seared and it will never bother them again. They become cold, callous. They can do whatever they want. Their conscience never bothers them anymore. So we understand that a conscience is something important, that it can be trained, but it can also be seared because of sin. 
Not only that, we understand that a conscience should be obeyed. A conscience should be obeyed. Now, <coughs> notice with me while we're in 1 Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 9. 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 19, rather, verse 19. Here it says, holding faith and a good conscience, which some having put away concerning faith have made shipwreck. That our conscience can help us to have a good conscience to do the things that's right. But if someone puts aside the conscience that they're supposed to obey, notice in verse 19 again, holding faith and a good conscience, which some having put away, what have they put away? Their good conscience concerning the faith had made shipwreck. That some people, when they have not obeyed their conscience, they shipwreck their lives. They crash. They know they weren't supposed to do it, but they ignored that conscience. And then they found themselves in trouble. They found themselves shipwrecked. They found themselves on the shelf. They found themselves unusable. They found themselves under a load of consequences. That our conscience should be obeyed. That which is known to be right and honestly and faithfully performed. That if it's something we're supposed to do, do it. It's simple. If we know we're supposed to do right, do it. And our conscience helps us. Our conscience can be clear. Our conscience should be, uh, is a tool that God has placed in us to help us to do things that are right. And so Paul says, for me, I work hard to keep my conscience clear. I work hard to have a conscience void of offense. Now, he further defines it. Not only does he have work to have a conscience that's void of offense. He says, I work hard to have a conscience that's void of offense towards God. I work hard so that way my conscience is clear before God. The next portion I want to show you is having a conscience clear towards God. A conscience clear towards God. We're going to look at several verses. Let's look at Second Tim, uh, Corinthians. The book of Second Corinthians chapter 4. So how do we keep a conscience Clear with God. Now, this I'm trying to help you. Young people, this is what young people struggle with of maintaining a clear conscience. There are so many teenagers today, so many young people who have such a miserable conscience because they've disobeyed it. They've disobeyed it. You need to start by having a conscience clear towards God. Notice with me and take your Bibles and look with me in the book of 2 Corinthians chapter number 4. 2 Corinthians chapter number 4, and notice with me in verse number 2. It says, But have renounced the hidden things of dishonesty, not walking in craftiness, nor handling the word of God deceitfully, but by manifestation of the truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. Now, in this passage here, it's dealing with the idea of teaching the Bible properly and teaching others properly. And knowing that our first audience, when we deliver a message, is not you, but God. Anything that I preach needs to make sure that I'm teaching it pleasing to Him. Anything that I teach should be done with the idea that I'm trying to please God with what I teach. Not man, first of all, but God, first of all. I have to stand before God and give an account. That one day I will stand before Him. That everything I say and everything that I do, I want to have a conscience that's void of offense. Knowing that I've done what's right, I'm going to stand before God. That means the way that I handle the word of God, this is the context of it, that our conscience towards God is maintained by obeying the Bible. 
You want to have a good conscience towards God? Obey His Word. And when you disobey His Word, you cannot maintain a good conscience towards God. If you keep saying, I don't care what the Bible says, I'm not listening, you're not going to have a good conscience towards God. Your conscience will bother you. Things will get in the way between you and the Lord. And so it starts off by our obedience to God's word. Are you obeying God's word? Notice with me as we go on with the same thought. First Timothy chapter number three. First Timothy chapter number three. By the way, conscience is used quite a bit in the epistles of first and second Timothy. First Timothy chapter number three. First Timothy chapter number three. And we see in the qualifications of a deacon, once again, the idea of a conscience. Notice what it says in the qualifications of a deacon. And 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse number 9, we're jumping right in the middle of uh, the qualifications, speaking about the deacon in verse number 9, holding the mystery of the faith in a pure conscience. What is the mystery of the faith, by the way, that's dealing with the gospel? And so a deacon, one of the requirements of a deacon is that he is faithful to delivering the gospel. That people are dying and going to hell. His responsibility is to make sure that it goes out. He's got to keep a good conscience towards God. Have you been faithful deacon of passing out tracts? Have you been faithful deacon for telling people about the Lord? Well, to have a good conscience towards God, a deacon's requirement is that he is faithful and delivering the message and passing and telling people about the Lord. He, he is to have a good conscience with God in this regard. Notice with me as we continue on to the book of Titus. That's two books over. The book of Titus in chapter number one. Titus in chapter number one. Once again, we see this idea of having a conscience clear before God. That it starts off by saying, if we obey the Bible... We will have a conscience clear with God. That's where it starts. That for deacons, that if they're faithful in telling people about the word of God, that they have a conscience that's good with the Lord. A conscience void of offense. Titus chapter 1. And notice with me, we're going to read several verses to get the context. Titus chapter 1 and verse 12. Titus 1 and verse 12. One of their own cells, even a prophet of their own, said, The Cretans are always liars, evil beasts. Slow bellies, this witness is true. Wherefore, rebuke them sharply, that they may be sound in the faith, not giving heed to Jewish fables and commandments of men that turn from the faith, but unto the pure all things are pure. But unto them that are defiled and unbelieving is nothing pure, but even their mind and conscience is defiled. They profess that they know God, but in works they deny him, being an abominable and disobedient and unto every good work reprobate. Here it's specifically talking about teachers, that teachers who teach against God's word and against what the Bible says, their conscience is defiled before God. That any teacher should be teaching what the Bible clearly says. Not their thoughts, not their opinions, not manipulating things to try to convince people. That we're supposed to teach what the Bible clearly says. And anyone who teaches outside of the Bible, their conscience is not going to be right with God. Their first audience, again, what I said, is always God. Is what I say what God intended. Is what God's saying is that what his thoughts. Is that what he desired to get across. That 
Anybody who's teaching doesn't have a platform to teach what they want. They have to teach what the Bible clearly says. Notice as it goes on, Hebrews chapter number 9. Hebrews chapter number 9. Again, the Bible says quite a bit about having a conscience. Paul says, I exercise myself to have a conscience void of offense. First of all, towards God. A conscience void of offense towards God. That I want my conscience to be right with God. I want my conscience to be nothing between me and the Savior. Hebrews chapter number 9. We see once again an idea of conscience. Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews 9. And notice with me in verse 14. 9.14, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? You know what happened is that I was a sinner on my way to hell. I had sinned and offended a holy, righteous God. But Jesus died. And when he died, he offered me salvation full, free, and forever. And his blood was able to cleanse my conscience. I can now have fellowship with God because my conscience can be clear with him because of the shed blood of Jesus Christ. Because of the forgiveness he offers. You know, that's why 1 John 1, 9 is in the Bible. If you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive your sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. You understand you don't have to deal with guilt anymore. That if you do something wrong, you can confess it. And God promised he's faithful and just to forgive you of your sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. That word cleanse has the idea to scrub clean. God can scrub clean our conscience. Oh, to have a clean conscience, there is nothing like it. There is nothing like having a spiritual shower in the inside out to make sure that I am totally right with God. And you can have a clean conscience towards God. You can confess your sin and get it right with Him and to be thoroughly cleansed. But Jesus died so we can have a clean conscience before Him. Jesus died so we can have fellowship between us and the Lord with nothing between me and the Savior. Notice again as we see something about having a conscience clean before the Lord, a conscience void of offense, First Peter chapter number 2. First Peter chapter number 2. This is a big one here. First Peter chapter number 2. 1 Peter chapter number 2. And 1 Peter chapter number 2. Notice with me in verse number 17. 1 Peter 2, 17. Notice these clear declarative statements in verse 17. Honor all men. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the king. Servants, be subject to your masters with all fear, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the forward. That means harsh or people that are not right. For this is thankworthy if a man for a conscience towards God endure grief, suffering wrongfully. And it goes on. But you understand the context that it's saying on that how we treat authority affects our conscience towards God. If you rebel against authority, you are not right with God. No way about it. If you're not right with your boss, you are not right with God. If you're not right with your pastor, you are not right with God. Wives, if you're not right with your husbands, you are not right with God. If you are not right with your president, you are not right with God. 
If you're not right with your governor, you are not right with God. If you're not right with your police officers, you're not right with God. You say, but you don't understand how evil and bad those authority is. Doesn't matter. Now, I understand the idea of submission doesn't mean silence. It's saying the right thing at the right time at the right place with the right spirit. So it's not silence. But you can be submitted unto authority even if they're wrong because you're looking unto God and past that. And that there is proper ways to handle it, mainly letting God take care of that authority problem instead of you. But if you are not right with authority, the Bible says you are not right with God. You have a conscience that has offense, not a conscience that's void of offense. So when we, we live in a rebellious world, we live in a world that brags about its rebellion against authority. We have a society that is not right with God. This is just a clear statement. And someone, they, in order to be right with God, they need to fix that authority problem that they have. Notice as we go on. Again, we're just talking with our conscience towards God. We haven't even got to the man part yet. This is all dealing with our conscience towards God. That's things that people around us might not even know. This is a heart matter. Notice as we go on to 1 Peter chapter number 3. 1 Peter chapter number 3. Again, just declaring what the Bible says. 1 Peter chapter number 3. And notice with me starting at verse number 20. 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse number 20. Which sometime were disobedient when once the long-suffering of God waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was preparing, wherein a few, that is, eight souls, were saved by water. And the like figure whereunto even baptism also doth now save us, not putting away of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience towards God by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is in the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers being made subject unto him. Here we see the idea that being right with God in the matter of baptism is an idea of conscience. Now, I know that there's some people that get bothered with this passage, that they take it out of context. They say, look, look, verse 21, here we go. The figure like the night uh, wherein even baptism, all those does now save us. And then they stop the verse and say, look, baptism saves us. It does not save us. Read the parenthetical phrase, which explains what he means. Not the putting away of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience towards God. Here it's talking about our relationship with God. That when we get baptized, it doesn't wash away our sins. But what it does do is that it shows that we're willing to obey what God has given us to do. That Baptism is a picture that Jesus died, he was buried, and that he rose again. And that we, because God said this is what you should do when you get saved, we're obeying that. You understand that a person who gets saved and refuses to get baptized after they know they should, they're not right with God. They're disobedient, even with the idea of baptism. And it's something they need to get right. Again, this is just what the Bible says. We're following with it. But Paul said, I exercise. I work at it. I strive at having a conscience void of offense towards God. Basically, he says, I work very hard to make sure things between me and God are right. With how I preach, with how I teach, how I obey authority, how I deal with the situations. I make sure that I'm right with God in my conscience. But he also said, I exercise myself to have a conscience 
void of offense toward God, but also toward men. That's the third thing I want to show is that he had a conscience void of offense toward man. Toward man. Do you understand that we need to strive to make sure that our conscience is right between other people? Notice with me in 2 Corinthians chapter number 1. The book of 2 Corinthians chapter number 1. And let's see what the word of God says about having a conscience void of offense towards man. Towards other men. 2 Corinthians chapter number 1. And if you don't mind, notice with me in verse number 12. <coughs> 2 Corinthians Chapter number one and verse number 12. For our rejoicing is this, the testimony of our conscience, that in simplicity and godly sincerity, not with fleshly wisdom, but by the grace of God, we have had our conversation in the world and more abundantly towards you, uh, you word. What he's saying here is that the way that we've tried to deal with you, we've tried to deal with things simply, godly sincerity and simplicity. He says, what, we've tried to deal with you simply. We've tried to deal with you with just an uh, honest conscience of trying to help you out. And I have a conscience void of offense because I've tried to do right by you. By telling you the truth. By telling you what the Bible says. By trying to help you. I'm not trying to get something from you, the Apostle Paul is saying. I've been trying to help you. And I've got a conscience void of offense because I have a pure conscience. I've been doing what's right. Trying to help you out. Notice as he goes on and explaining in the book of First Timothy, chapter number one. Once again, jumping back to First Timothy, there's a lot of things about conscience in First Timothy. First Timothy, chapter number one. Apostle Paul is explaining, I have a conscience void of offense because I've tried to deal with you in simplicity. I've tried to deal with you in godly sincerity. I've got a clear conscience because I've just been trying to help you and tell you the truth. And 1 Timothy chapter number 1, we see something else. Notice with me in verse number 3. 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 3. As I besought thee to abide still at Ephesus when I went into Macedonia, that thou mightest charge some that they teach no other doctrine, neither give heed to fables and endless genealogies, which minister questions rather than godly edifying, which is in faith, so do. At the end of the commandment is charity out of a pure heart and a good conscience. Of a faith unfeigned. Once again it comes to the subject of teaching. You understand that there's many passages. Dealing with what we teach. And how we teach. And maintaining a good conscience. And people who are not teaching correctly. And not teaching what the Bible says. They're not right with God. But they're also not right with other men. The Bible here is telling. Uh, Paul is telling Timothy. You need a guard as a pastor. You need a guard who's teaching there. At the church of Ephesus. The reason why is that there's going to be some people. Who are going to try to bring up doctrines. That are going to end up causing more questions. And any endless genealogies. And cause debates and whatever else. They're trying to stir things up. That if someone's teaching. All they're doing is making people miserable. By trying to say look at what I've learned. You know where the. Whether it's something outlandish like the aliens are coming or they come to some false doctrine that, you know, only I know. And that ends up not comforting people, not true with the Bible. That how te people teach, they are not right with the Lord and they're not right with other people with the end result. Now, I understand that people can be deceived and that they can truly believe what they, they have. But they're not right with others. For example, if I taught that in order to go to heaven... All you had to do was be a good person. I'm not right with you because I'm not telling you the truth. Does that make sense? 
I'm causing a problem with you. If you die and go to hell because someone taught you a different way other than Jesus, I'm not right with you. Anyone's not right with him if they teach some other way. Man, I'd hate to have on my conscience that people died and went to hell because of something I taught. That's a big deal. What happens with someone who maybe they're a Christian and they've accepted Christ as their savior, but they miss out on things on the Christian life because of something I taught. Man, I don't want to have that responsibility. Man, what we teach, we need to think of the end result. Where does it lead? We need to teach the Bible clearly what the Bible says so we can be a help to people and not confuse them. I'm not right with God if I teach something that messes people up in their life of faith of walking towards God. Notice as we go on, see what the Bible says some more. The book of Hebrews chapter number 13. The book of Hebrews chapter number 13. The Bible says quite a bit of having a conscience void of offense, of maintaining a good conscience towards God and towards man. How is your conscience doing, by the way? Have you been right with authority? Have you been right with God? Well, let's continue on and see what the Bible says. The book of Hebrews, chapter number 13. Notice with me in verse 17. Hebrews 13, 17. Obey them that had the rule over you and submit yourselves. Now, God also knows human nature. He gives this command. Obey them that had the rule over you. Now, specifically in the context, he's dealing with the idea of pastors. But you can apply this to any authority. Obey them that had the rule over you and submit yourselves. And they know that the normal question coming out of every teenager's mouth is, why? Why? So he says, let me tell you why. Obey them that have the rule over you and submit yourselves. Why? For they watch for your souls as they must give an account that they may do it with joy and not with grief. For this is unprofitable for you. You understand that the burden of a pastor is that he wants more for you than what you want for yourself. He desires to see you follow after the Lord. But when you say, now nah, I want to do whatever I want, it breaks his heart. Man, I want you to have more. I want you to have God's blessings. I want you to pray. I want you to pay attention to me. Why? I'm trying to help you out. And when you don't pay attention, when you do your own thing, I can see where you're going. Man, that's hard. I'm trying to help. You understand that I have to stand before God as the pastor of this church. And I have to give an account for what is being taught and who is teaching. Now, I'm not responsible for your actions. I'm responsible for what you're taught. And... Well, how you apply it's up to you, but that's a big responsibility to teach this right, to know that I'm going to stand before God. Have I done everything I could? Have I prayed for you enough? Have I done so much? Now, Paul is addressing them and saying, you need to obey the leaders. You need to obey your pastor. Why? Because they're trying to watch over you. Notice verse 18 as it continues with that thought. Pray for us as your pastor. Pray for your pastor. Pray for authority. Why? For we trust that we have a good conscience in all things willing to live honestly. He says, hey, you have a responsibility to obey authority and I'm supposed to direct you right. You need to pray for your authority that I direct you the right way, that I teach you the right way. You please pray for me that I teach you correctly because this is a heavy burden. That's what the Apostle Paul is begging to the people. Please pray for me. So I can direct you the way that you should. I care for you and I've got to watch for your souls. Pray for me. Because I want to be right with you and what I teach. Notice as he goes on, 1 Peter chapter number 3. In the last verse we'll look up. 1 Peter chapter number 3. 
First Peter chapter number three. And notice with me in verse number 15. First Peter chapter three and verse 15. It says, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you of a reason of the hope that's within you with meekness and fear. Having a good conscience that whereas they speak evil of you as of evildoers, they may be ashamed that falsely accuse you uh, your good conversation in Christ. For it is better if the will of God be so that you suffer for well-doing than for evil-doing. Here we say even when suffering wrongly, that we maintain a good conscience before man. Why? Because it's a reflection on the Lord. Are we trusting God? You understand that bad things are going to happen to you. And you understand we have a choice of how we're going to react. Someone said attitude is your choice. (laughs) How you react, that's your choice. You could choose to say, I'm going to do what's right before man and God, and I'm going to react properly. Why? Because people are watching you. They're watching to see how you react when people lie against you, when things at work are not going right, when things at home. They're watching you to see if you're going to respond properly. You understand those are great opportunities to witness to people that we're trusting in God. Don't you understand how bad things are for you? I do, but God's still good and God's still right. How can you say that? Because he's still good and so right. I don't understand. God's still good and God's still right. And it causes them to think. You understand that in our history, we have many martyrs who have been burnt at the stake and died for their faith. One of them was John Huss. John Huss was a follower of John Wycliffe, one of the first writers, uh, translators of the English Bible, trying to get the English Bible to people. Well, after he was chased off of England, John Huss, he was uh, in Bohemia, which we now know uh, as Germany in that same region. And he just tried to teach the Bible the faithfully, as faithfully as he could. Well, the church did not like What John Huss was teaching. And so what they did is they arrested John Huss. And they put him on trial. And he was found to be guilty. And they burnt him at the stake. His dear wife was also arrested. And um, they tried to get her to renounce. They tried to say don't follow the same fate as your husband. Renounce Christ in your ways. And do what we tell you to do as a church. And she refused. Every day. Um. Up until her death, she wore black. But the day that she was tasked to go to the stake and be burnt at the stake for her faith, she was wearing a beautiful white dress. And they said, why in the world are you wearing a white dress? Don't you understand you're going to die? She goes, yes, but I'm going to be today. I'm going to be reunited with my husband and I'm going to be reunited with my Savior. And so they began to take her through the streets of Bohemia. And as they dragged her through the streets, she kept saying, Jesus saves and began to quote verses and began to say more verses and more verses. Finally, they said, if you don't stop, we're going to pull your tongue out of your mouth. And she said, I'm still going to tell people about Christ. And as they marched on, she began to still quote more scripture till finally they stopped the progression and they yanked out her tongue. Then what they did, she did. As she walked, she still kept pointing to God all the way up to the stake till they burnt her on the stake for her faith. You know, even in the midst of that, she could have threw a fit. She could have charged them. But the whole time she's still saying God is still good. God is still right. You know what happened when many of the martyrs, they were they were put on the stake 
that what would happen is they would put them on a stake and they would have the flames start going around them. Then they would have a bag of gunpowder around their neck called a faggot. And what would happen is the flames begin to catch fire and begin to burn them alive. Finally, the gunpowder would get uh, charged up and actually blow their head off finally at the end after they've suffered for a while. And the Christians who understood what was going to happen, they would be burning at the stake. And instead of yelling and instead of screaming, they'd be singing hymns to God. Oh, victory in Jesus, my Savior forever. And they died with such grace and they died with such peace. By the way, that's what God the Spirit gave them at that time. That God gave them that. It wasn't of themselves. That the soldiers who put them on the stake went to the church officials and said, put us on the stake. We want to go on the stake. And they said, why? We want whatever they have. The peace that they have, we want the same thing. Why could they say that? Because you had a group of people who had a conscience void of offense towards men. Even when they were getting ready to die, they could have thrown a fit and no one would have blamed them. But they said, listen here. My God is still good and he's still right. And I don't care what the situation is. I'm going to trust in him. And what it did is it brought many more people to trust in Christ because of the way that they suffered during the hard times. You see, it's all about keeping a conscience void of offense, first of all, towards God and then towards man. Remember, I've already given you the solution that if there is something on your conscience, it doesn't have to stay there. First John 1, 9. If you confess your sins, he is faithful and just just to forgive your sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. You know, some people just need to take a spiritual bath and there's nothing wrong with it because we're all sinners and we sin all the time. The thing is, is to keep short accounts with God, to keep your conscience clear that if you do do something wrong, run to the Savior, admit that you are wrong and let him cleanse you. But maybe some of you, it's been a while since you've taken a bath. It's been a while since you've taken a shower. Maybe no one else smells you, but the Lord does. How is your conscience towards God? How is your conscience towards authority? How is your conscience towards fellow man? As for the Apostle Paul, he says, I exercise. I work at it. I strive to have a conscience void of offense towards God and towards man. How is your conscience today? Thank you for listening to this audio message. This is Pastor Scotty Bockhaus, and I encourage you to take this information that you just received and make a specific decision to follow after the Lord. If you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior, let me beg you to take the time to receive Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. If you are saved, I encourage you to make a decision in your life to help you get closer with the Lord. If there's anything specific we can do to be a blessing or to pray for you, we encourage you. Look us up on the internet at riverviewbc.com. Once again, that's riverviewbc.com. Or if you would prefer to call us, you can give us a call at area code 920 Five three zero six three oh eight. Once again, that number is nine two zero five three zero six three oh eight. If there's anything we can do to be a blessing or an encouragement to you, please let us know. We would love to make ourselves available. Thank you.